So uh, at the first service, when the pastor sat down in our pew, someone had left a zombie invasion. And uh, I, I uh, was hopeful that it wasn't a warning. Uh, if you're missing your zombie in invasion, it's here. But then uh, during the time between services, we also now have treasure hunters in trouble. So uh, I know we're, that someone's trying to give us a message up here. And um, you know, after the service, you can explain to us uh, what the meaning of this message is. Uh, we are continuing our uh, uh, sermon series related to the spiritual life and the spiritual journey today. We've uh, learned in previous weeks that, that our spirituality is about our relationship to God and to others, and that it's something that we can't do without God, that we need God to do it. And today we're looking at the Exodus story and we're asking what does this story have to tell us about our spiritual journey in this day and in this age. And so I am reading uh, from chapter 14 of the book of Exodus beginning at verse 19. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. This is the word of God for the people of God, be to God. So uh, this story of Exodus is uh, found in the second uh, book of the Bible. And this title, I think there's a slide, Exodus, uh, the title of the book that we know actually comes from the Greek word exodus, which means going out. It's a story uh, of the people of Israel who were captives in Egypt being led out by the power of God and Moses' leadership uh, away from their captivity. Now, uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, the Hebrew name for this book is actually Wa'ela Shemot, uh, these are the names, and those are actually the first couple words of the book in Hebrew. But we take the Greek name, Exodus, the going out, and uh, we want to see today how this story of the Exodus has something to say for all of us in our spiritual lives today. Now, you all know this story of Exodus uh, that... Next slide, please that the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. If you go back to Genesis, you'll remember Joseph got thrown in the pit by his brothers. He ended up in Egypt and ended up, in fact, an important man in the courts of Egypt because he could interpret dreams. Well, when his starving brothers and his father end up coming to Egypt looking for food, they get food and they get the surprise of Joseph and they settle 
in the land of Egypt. And over time, they become more numerous. And over time, as is often true, uh, when another people is in a land, the Egyptians begin to oppress them and enslave them. They make them do the heavy lifting. They make them uh, make the bricks and uh, build the buildings and pull things and tote things there, uh, doing the hard work of Egypt. And so the Hebrew people are not having a particularly good life at this point in the land of Egypt. They are captives in Egypt. Now this is where Moses comes into the story. And you will remember uh, that as the people of Israel grew uh, larger and larger, the Pharaoh began to be a little bit worried about how numerous they were becoming. And so he put out this decree that when a Hebrew baby was born, if it was a boy, it would be killed. So when Moses is born, uh, and I, I like to say here, you know, that, that these kinds of uh, mean uh, sort of things that you want to do aren't always logical, because if you kill all the boy babies, pretty soon you don't have a workforce anymore. But nonetheless, this is the, the decree that the Pharaoh had put out, and Moses' mother puts him in a little reed basket and puts him in the water, and of course, one of the princesses, one of the daughters of Pharaoh, finds him, takes him as her own, raises him in uh, the courts of uh, the Pharaoh and the highest powers of Egypt, okay? And so uh, he knows throughout his life that he's actually of Hebrew descent, but he has this great position and power in Egypt. And then one day he's out walking around and one of the taskmasters is beating on one of the Hebrew slaves and Moses kills the man not the slave. Moses kills the, the Egyptian who's doing this. And then he's afraid. And now he knows he's in trouble. And so Moses hightails it out uh, to the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. He marries Zipporah. Uh, he ends up tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro in the middle of nowhere. That's quite a fall from uh, the highest power of Egypt into being a sheep herder in the middle of nowhere, not even his own sheep. And this is where God comes to Moses in the burning bush. And this is where he says, you know what? You know those people you ran away from? Well, guess what? I'm, I'm sending you back there. I want you to lead my people out of captivity. And Moses is like, yeah, but I don't talk good. You know, I'm afraid of going back there. And he's like, no, no, no problem. We'll give you Aaron and, and just go on and, and do what I need you to do. A lot of times God will use our past for God's purposes in our present. And this is what's going on. So Moses goes back, and you'll remember the story of the plagues where he's displaying the power of God. He's saying to the Pharaoh, you let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, nah. So frogs and gnats and cockroaches. Well, I don't think that was really in there. But all these things that are, that would have that done it if they'd only had the plague of cockroaches. But they have all these horrible things that happen. And finally, Pharaoh says, all right, all right, your people can go. Let them go out and worship their God. Uh, get them out of here. And so Moses leads all the Hebrew people out of their captivity in Egypt. And, and you know, the Pharaoh changes his mind. And they're being chased by the Egyptians now. And there's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And then they are marching along and they get up to the Red Sea. And here the people all along are going, 
You know, it was better for us in Egypt to die there than to bring us out here in the middle of nowhere and make us die right here by the Red Sea. You know, this is the human nature. We're always crying about what was going on back there and thinking that it was better. And here they are complaining to Moses. And Moses says, oh, Lord, what will I do? We're stuck. We can't go any further. And God says, Moses, lift up your staff and the waters part and the people walk through. They are released from their captivity. Now, we know this story well. All of us have heard this story since we were little kids. And it's like, okay, what do we make of this story of the parting of the Red Sea and the cloud of pil the pillar of cloud and all of this stuff? How are we today supposed to understand a story like this? Now, for some people, they're going to say, well we can probably find some scientific explanation for the parting of the Red Sea. And in fact, if you go on uh, Google or Bing or whatever, and, and you Google it, or do you Bing it on Bing? I don't know. You can find that a guy did a master's thesis a couple years ago in atmospheric and oceanic sciences at the University of Colorado, and he came to a conclusion that the Red Sea parting wasn't the really Red Sea. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was farther up the Nile Delta. And there the dynamics are right, that fluid dynamics, and maybe someone like Dale understands this stuff. I have no clue. But are such that a wind really could come in that area and blow the waters apart so that someone could walk through it. You see, what they're trying to do is find a scientific explanation. They don't want a supernatural explanation for what happened. They want to find a natural explanation. So for some people, if we do the, the science on these kinds of miracles, we'll find that they aren't so miraculous after all, that there is really a logical explanation. So that's how some people will look at this. Now, a second way that people look at stories like the Exodus story is to say, well, maybe it's fable or myth. And a myth isn't necessarily something that lacks truth. What a myth is, is a story that does contain some of the deepest truths of, of human life, but may only have a partial relation to history, or, or sometimes not any historical grounding at all. So in uh, today, uh, you'll find scholars like the Jesus Seminar who will gather together and vote on the Gospels and, and which are authentic sayings of Jesus because the rest of them are more mythic and not really Jesus. And this is what we try and do as human beings oftentimes is say, you know, these stories are just myths. They tell us something important, but, you know, maybe they never really happened. Now, I think that for a lot of us, when we think of the Exodus story, we have to look at how Scripture actually functions in terms of sacred Scripture. These are not just, you know, the Bible isn't just a book like zombie apocalypse. The, the Bible is a book that works with all of these deep meanings so that we read it over and over again trying to encounter uh, the living God in the midst of this word. And of course, since the earliest times of Christians, they've understood that sacred texts 
operate on these sort of different levels, that at the more surface level, you do find historical realities. You find culture, you find language, you find things going on that set them in a particular place and time and say something about that text. But at the next deeper level is this level where it's telling us something about how we should live our lives as human beings. There's a moral dimension to these texts. It's telling us, you know, do this, don't do that, because it's helping us learn how to live a good life. But the deepest level, if you stop at the moral and the historical, you'll miss the spiritual level, the level that operates on faith, the deepest level where God is speaking to us, that level where we can go back into the text and go, wow, I never saw that before. Because there is something of the living God that is drawing us deeper into the text to try and help us find a message that speaks to our lives today. It doesn't ignore the other levels, but it has something that's alive for us today. Now, I imagine that for most of us, when we think of the Exodus story, we envision this. I call it the Charlton Heston effect. He was a great Moses. We've probably all seen this movie, The Ten Commandments, more than once. And sometimes you'll go like, oh, yeah, he's about to part the Red Sea. I'm going for popcorn. Because we know how this story goes. It's so familiar to all of us. There's nothing really miraculous about it. Oh, yeah, he's going to walk right up to the Red Sea, and it's going to part. And we get used to, we get inured to these texts. We know what's going to happen and they just become commonplace in our lives. Uh, maybe sometimes we'll tell a child and watch their amazement. But for us, ah, we know this story so well. And uh, in our mind, uh, Charlton Heston is Moses. Now, when we look at texts like Exodus, and we try and go to the deeper meaning, what we begin to find is that in this Exodus story, in our own lives, just like the people of Israel, there are many things that hold us captive. Maybe one of the things that hold, holds us captive is this sense of how well we know the stories and, and that they are something that we're so used to that we don't even really pay attention to God working through them anymore. Maybe the thing that holds us captive is addictions. There are a lot of people in our society today who suffer not only from addictions to uh, drugs and alcohol, but a whole range of things, pornography, uh, video games, TV, uh, food, shopping, you name it. There are a bunch of things that people are so uh, 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 caught up in, maybe that's the word, caught up in that their attention is consumed by these certain things that really hold them captive. Maybe someone is uh, captive to fear. I'm afraid of what could happen. I'm afraid of the future. And if I just stay th here, right here, things will be fine. Maybe we are afraid of, uh, uh, you know, what, what will happen if I change anything. Some of us are held captive to the I, me, my. I want things to be my way. I want things to go this way. I want this to happen. Some of us are captive to the past. 
At least I had leaks back in Egypt. You know, we maybe had to deal with that uh, bricks without straw thing, but onions, man, we had onions back there. And, and of course, our memory is always uh, kinder than the reality was back then. But for all of us, every one of us, there are things that hold us captive and God's way of working with us spiritually is always to lead us by stages. That we're in one place spiritually and God is going to try and bring us out of the captivity to whatever is holding us back so that we might take the next step in our faith journey. But here's the thing. There is a wildness to God. You and I often get so used to uh, what happens in the scripture and so used to God being present in our lives that we almost at times treat God like a genie in a bottle. All we have to do is pray to God and ask God what we want to have happen and then God will do what we want. I want to be rich, God will do it. I want to be this, God will do it. But the truth of the matter is, and the truth with all these stories in the Old Testament is that there is a wildness to God. There is an unexpected quality to God. We cannot control God. We cannot tame God. We cannot make God do our bidding because here is the biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says, we live our lives before the wild, dangerous, unfettered, and free character of the living God. We sometimes forget this mysterious quality of God and we become too sure of what's going to happen and what should happen next. We determine what we think God should do, but the truth of the biblical stories over and over again is that we don't know what God's going to do. When the people reached the Red Sea, they didn't know what God was going to do. When uh, the people were there on Good Friday watching Jesus die, they didn't know that in three days he would rise again. But for us, we know, oh, we're doing Easter eggs tomorrow, and then Sunday, woohoo, Easter. We have to learn to expect the unexpected, to let God bring us out of whatever is holding us back from the next stage of our spiritual journey. The way I would put it is we have to walk right up to the edge of the waters to where we uh, have come to the end of our ability to do it by ourselves, dip our toes in the water and open ourselves for God to act in ways that exceed our expectation and our understanding. That's the spiritual journey when God comes to us and moves in the way that God sees best for bringing us out. You know, I am uh, reminded that back in, oh, about April or May, and that there were a, a lot of you who felt maybe this church was in a bit of a captivity and you had your uh, plans and expectations about where God, or at least the DS and the bishop, should lead you to move the church forward or backward to a more glorious time, but you had these plans and expectations for what God should do here in your midst. But unknown to you, there were these three people off somewhere that you didn't even know 
And there I was, and I started to have this, this vision. I, you know, it wasn't like uh, I heard a voice, but I had this vision, this deep spiritual sense that God was saying to me, look, you need to do this new thing. You need to have uh, co-pastors who are of different races and who are of different generations and bivocational, and you need to come together and you need to lead a church. And so this is like building up in me, and I was to have lunch with my district superintendent, and I walked in the conference office, and I saw Carlos, and I said, Carlos, I have this vision. Let me tell you about it. And he said, well, you know, we've been talking about how to do a new thing, and I said, would you want to do this? And he's like, well, yeah, let's do it. Well, he's having lunch with his district superintendent, and he actually says to me, well, maybe we should all get together. And I said, oh, no, 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 it's kind of crazy. Let's not. So, so I go off with my district superintendent saying, all right, this is a little bit crazy, but here's what I'm hearing. And he's like, well, that's a good idea. And we go across the street to a restaurant and he's like, why aren't we having lunch with Carlos and Rockford? And I'm like, well, so we tried to text them and we tried calling them and we couldn't get a hold of them. And guess what? They come walking in the same restaurant. <laughs> we said, we've been trying to reach you. Well, we haven't seen your text. By the end of that lunch, we had identified that village seemed like the perfect place to plant this vision that was coming from God. And within 24 hours, they were bringing it to Dale and the SPR, which, listen, if you know anything about the church, the church never moves that fast. This had to be the power of God. And so... I just wonder today, you know, all your expectations of what was the perfect way forward back those months ago, and today this new thing that God is doing here, the new energy, the new possibilities, God is leading us in a new direction, and all God asks is that we continue to be open and to walk and to see what amazing things will come to us in the future. We are not out of the wilderness yet. Remember that the people had to wander for a ways in the wilderness. And yet God continued to lead them by stages to that promised land. In our spiritual journeys, all of us are held in some ways captive and need the power of God to bring us out time and again to lead us deeper into the person that God would have us to be. And God also leads churches in this same way, leading us deeper into the Spirit, into that place that God would have us be. And so our job today is to remember this wildness of God. The way God works that always exceeds our expectations and our understandings and to open ourselves again and again to let God do the unexpected, even the miraculous, in our own lives. There is a wildness to God for which we should all give thanks. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.